my passion is to dig into the research, do research, try to figure out what's appropriate for women with regards to exercise, nutrition, environmental concerns, using hot and cold for performance or health. And it keeps me going. What's going on, everybody? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to another installment of Hurdle Moment from Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course have some fun along the way. Okay. I have a confession. My voice has been better. (laughs) I was doing, oh my gosh, my fair share of cheering at last weekend's Chicago Marathon, but the show must go on. And I need to bring you my conversation with Dr. Stacy Sims. Now, if you recognize Dr. Sims' name, that's because she has been on the show before talking to us about how the menstrual cycle impacts training. Well, this week, she is back to talk on nutritional differences between men and women. We are addressing the impact that food has on performance and why women should be thinking about nutrition differently than the guys. We cover so much ground in this episode talking about everything from intermittent fasting and meal timing to uh, the concept of iron deficiencies and why women over the age of 35 often tend to have them. Plus data differences between men and women and the concept of under fueling, something that is a main point of struggle for so many female athletes. Stacy also comments on sports gels, drinks, bars, the idea of carb loading and how that actually impacts the body, plus so much more. So many really great takeaways in here. This is a combo you are definitely going to want to share with some of your friends. Make sure you're following along with Hurdle over on social. It's at Hurdle Podcast. You know me over at Emily Abadi and If you're not subscribed yet to the weekly hurdle, we would love to land in your inbox with a lot of the same motivation, inspiration, and content that you love from the show every single Friday. The link to subscribe, it's absolutely free, is in the show notes. All right, I'll spare you more of this angelic voice. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am welcoming back researcher, author, expert, Dr. Stacey Sims to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so happy to have you back here. I know that I got a lot of messages after our first conversation, which I will link to in the show notes about the correlations between our cycles and performance. And so I knew that I needed to get you back on the show to dispel some more of your wisdom to the hurdlers. Awesome. Awesome. 
<laughs> so today, before we jump in, why don't you give, for those that may be new to you, a little bit of a refresher about what you're doing right now, what you have going on, and why it is that you love what you do. Uh, so I guess the best way to put it is I am very passionate about female athletes, knowing that anyone who exercises on purpose is an athlete. And the fact that there is so much inequality between the research and the guidelines that my passion is to dig into the research, do research, try to figure out what's appropriate for women with regards to exercise, nutrition, environmental concerns, using hot and cold for performance or health. And it keeps me going because, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman, you're a woman, I have a daughter, she has friends. And it just keeps going. For sure. So today, what you and I are going to home in on is we are going to talk about the impact of food and nutrition on performance. Now, a little bit different of a topic than the last time you and I sat down together, but just as important, especially because oftentimes we don't talk about the discrepancies or the importances of addressing the difference between training as a woman versus training as a man. So where do we even begin on this topic? Well, one of the things that I like to really point out is that we have sex differences from birth so that we know that when you are identified as XX or XY, there are specific differences with the way that our body will grow and behave as well as metabolism. So what I mean by how we use carbohydrate versus fat versus protein. And then when we hit puberty with an epigenetic exposure of estrogen progesterone, we have additional changes. So when we're looking at what specifically is different, everything, like we know that everything is different. We know that when we look at women without estrogen, progesterone, anything like that, we are more capable of being metabolically flexible. So that's, you know, the buzzwords of being able to switch from fat to carbohydrate because our bodies are attuned to that where we have more proteins in the mitochondria of our, of our muscle cells to use more free fatty acids. So that switches the body from using carbohydrate. And we also know that when you have the exposure of estrogen and progesterone, there's additional changes where women re really use a lot of blood glucose first, then they tap into a little bit of liver, liver glycogen, and then they tap into free fatty acids. So they don't use as much muscle glycogen as men. So we see all this research about how much carbohydrate you need per hour or trying to do a trendy diet of low carb, high fat, or you know, trying ketogenic or something like that. It just doesn't work for women. So when we start digging into the little bit of research that's there and then expanding upon it, we see this whole echelon of things that can be harmful to women, but the fitness media has pushed it as being the, the be all end all that women should be following. Let's start there. So you touched on the things that could be harmful. What does that concern? So let's look, for example, like the, the really hot trend of intermittent fasting, right? And we know that a lot of people will delay their breakfast and they'll do fasted training. And then they might not necessarily eat afterwards because they're still in that fasted window. When we look at what happens to a woman's body, we see that we need more nutrition in and around training in order to get adaptations. 
So when we do fasted training, we are signaling to the hypothalamus that there's not enough nutrition coming in for adaptation as well as general health. Because we have two areas in the brain that's very sensitive to nutrient density and nutrient uptake. It's the same areas that signal our body to do our menstrual cycle, our endocrine health, as well as our appetite hormones. But when we look at men, they only have one area. So they have a threshold that's a lot less sensitive than women. So they can get away with doing fasted training and getting different metabolic changes. But those metabolic changes already exist in women. Right, right. So when you talk about the quote unquote fitness media perpetuating different trends and diets, this is probably just one of the trends diets that you speak on. What else should we be concerned of? Um, so then we look at things like protein, right? And we see all these recommendations for higher protein for men. And then when we look at the general recommendation for women and look at the research, the general recommendation for women is based on research from sedentary older men. So when we start looking at some of the newer research on the guidelines for protein intake for women who are recreationally active or resistance training or doing heavy blocks of training, it's almost double what the general recommendation is, but trying to push that through to get people to understand, they're like, but the RDA and the recommendations say, I only need 0.8 per pound. It's like, no, no. When you actually look at what you need as an active woman with muscle mass, you need like 1.6 or maybe two. So we're looking at a lot of differences within the guidelines versus what the research is now showing us. And when we see that women aren't taking in as much protein, then we see, okay, well, there's compromise in lean mass development, neurotransmitter actions, um, nerve, brain, a whole bunch of things that need amino acids. And yet then you have the pushback of, oh, we don't have too high protein diet because it'd be harmful to your kidneys and your bones when there's research to show that that's not true, unless you have a predisposed right. condition. So there's this nuance where we look at some of the newer research is coming out that's really robust and the translation into action, and it's still lagging behind. On the importance of intaking enough protein, I always love to give actionable tips when it comes to not only addressing the science, but then what we can do with it. So I know you mentioned maybe something closer to 1.6. With that, what are some perhaps protein sources that women can be leaning into outside of just like someone says protein. And a lot of the times people, their first gut reaction is, okay, meat, right? Meat, chicken, yeah. fish, et cetera. But what else can we be leaning into? Um, well, I'm, I've been uh, plant-based since I was 14. So many, many years. So when we look at some of the other um, non-meat options, there's a plethora of things. You can look at dairy and eggs if you do that. Um, we can also look at tempeh. We can look at tofu. We can look at different beans and seeds and nuts. Peas actually have a really high amount of protein per calorie. So it's not about, okay, I need to sit down and have a palm-sized portion of meat. It's about looking and saying, oh, I can have some nuts and some seeds and some beans and all sorts of different things across to build up the amount of protein that's in what I'm eating. Post-exercise is a little bit more difficult because a lot of people are like, oh, what do I have? Because I'm not that hungry. So you can do a smoothie. And if you're not doing protein powders, that's okay. You can put in seeds and nuts and you can do a little bit of yogurt. Um, you can look at using cauliflower instead of frozen bananas because it gives the same texture. So it's about being wide in the variety of all the plants that you're eating as well. 
And aside from protein, I know something else that when we're talking about trendy things, something else that women may be tempted to skimp out on a little bit are carbohydrates. Let's talk a little bit about that. Why is it so, so important that that we do not skip out on our carbohydrates? I know. I laugh when people are like, I I just don't want to do carbs. I can't eat carbs. They make me fat. It's like, no, no. When you start reintroducing carbs, yes, there might be some weight gain on the scale, but that does not represent body fat. It represents the fact that now your muscles have fuel. Now your cells have fuel because every time you store a gram of carbohydrate, you also have three to four grams of water, which equates to weight on the scale. But when we're looking from a functionality of carbohydrate, remember, as I was saying, that there are two areas in the brain or in the hypothalamus for women. And these two areas are kisspeptin neurons. And they're super, super important because women have this thing called the menstrual cycle and we have endocrine function that we need. And it's very energetic and it's very hungry for um, calories and carbohydrate. So if we start dropping too far in carbohydrate and existing primarily on like ketones or unfortunately, a lot of women just don't eat plain enough full stop, then we have that downregulation of our kisspeptin neurons. And we have that only within four days of, of not eating enough or definitely not eating carbohydrate. We start to have thyroid dysfunction, resting metabolic rate starts turning down. We start seeing changes down the way of our bone turnover. So we start getting regeneration slowed. It just slows everything right down. And it also interferes with our appetite hormones. So then we have a misstep between what it means to be hungry and what it means to be full. So this is where women are like, oh, well, I'm doing really well on XYZ diet. It's like, are we really doing well? Because we don't know what your long-term effect is. Are you falling into low energy availability? What's going on with your thyroid? What's going on with your resting metabolic rate? What's going on with your bones? And a lot of times people just don't look the long term. They're like, well, right now I have lost weight. So that's great. But when we look at the longer term effects, it's not, it's not healthy for women. Exactly what you're saying here is so critical, right? Because whatever diet you may be following, it's bigger than what amount of weight you may be losing. How are you feeling on that diet? Also like consulting with an expert to see what this shift and what you're putting into your body is doing to your body. All of these things, super important and critical as a benchmark outside of just what's happening on the scale. Now, what you were starting to get into here, which is also a super important topic when it comes to fueling and performance is under fueling. Can yes. you shed some light on women and under fueling and the prevalence of that? So when we look at underfueling, we know that over 50% of recreational female athletes are in what we call low energy availability. And what happens with low energy availability is, again, everything starts to slow down. And we can see it as intentional through like dietary restriction or dietary um, you know, patterns that we follow or unintentional. Unintentional is a sudden uptick in training, or perhaps we get a little bit busy and we forget to eat. But basically what happens when you exercise and forget to eat, or you don't fuel for your training session, is your body's in a breakdown state. And it, it's like, hey, wait a second, I don't have enough food coming in. So I better start 
pushing and down-regulating all of the systems that require a lot of energy. So we see a lot of women are what we call subclinical. So they're not eating quite enough. They might get up and have food before they train, but then they delay their food intake because they get busy. Like they have to get kids off or they have to rush to work, they're stuck in traffic. And so their body stays in this catabolic breakdown state. And the first thing that goes is lean mass because lean mass is very hungry. It requires a lot of fuel and, and stuff to keep it going. Then we see this downturn in your thyroid because that's the main metabolic, um, you know, regulator per se. And then if we're looking, okay, well, a woman is doing that, but then she's having lunch and dinner. So she might be getting enough calories, but she's mistiming them. So when we look at the longer perturbation of that, it's called relative energy deficiency in sport. And this is a big syndrome where we start to see every system of the body affected. So we start seeing gut issues, cardiovascular issues, psychological issues, definitely issues with bone and bone density, lean mass loss, increase in fat mass, changes in our lipid profiles for uh, a higher risk factor for cardiovascular disease, even if you're younger. Um, we see a misstep in our glucose metabolism, so a higher resting uh, blood glucose. Um, we also see issues with immunity. So people tend to have more upper respiratory tract infections or grab or end up getting sick with every illness that's going around and have longer term effects on it. So a lot of times women don't quite understand that they're in this state because of all these different uh, signs and symptoms of being in it. They are like, oh, I have GI distress. I must have not eaten well, or I've always had some kind of GI issue. And I'm always super tired because I'm at that point where I'm really stressed out. But if we just take a step back and you're experiencing things like a lot of GI distress, poor sleep, lots of mood swings, let's take a step back. Let's fuel for what we are doing and let's have food afterwards and see how that goes over the course of a few weeks and see how that might change. One, your ability to train. Because we now have fuel, we can polarize our training and we get better adaptations and our body is like, okay, now we have fuel coming in. I can finally get into less of that sympathetic drive of tired, but wired and get better sleep, which then feeds forward to better adaptation and better recovery. Taking a break from today's episode to give some love to my sponsor at Gooder. Gooder is the maker of goodness, my favorite running sunglasses, hands down. And that's not just because they are super stylish. I am obsessed with their Operation Blackout style. It's a large, sleek aviator, but also because they are no slip, they are all polarized and no bounce. Plus, their price point literally cannot be matched. Gooder sunglasses start at just $25, and that price tag is about to get a little bit better because, of course, they are offering you all a special incentive to buy. Head on over to gooder.com slash hurdle and get free shipping on your entire order today. Again, that is gooder.com, G-O-O-D-R.com slash hurdle to get free shipping on your entire order today. Thank you. 
it's so true, right? Because so many of us are just going through our day to day and accepting the fact that something feeling a little off is the normal, but it doesn't have to be the normal if you're observant about what's going on in your body. This makes me think about when I did uh, an inside tracker panel and I learned through that panel that I had low ferritin and low iron. I was able to then like once I had that information, I kind of took a step back and I was like, wow, this makes so much sense because of X and Y and Z. Now on that note, I know that women having low iron, especially as we get older, mid thirties, et cetera, mid thirties and onward, that's pretty frequent. So what do we need to know about that when it comes to our performance? Why is monitoring that also super important? So the really interesting thing about iron is this is something else that we look at like sex differences, right? And we see that there's a higher incidence of of iron deficiency or anemia or low ferritin in women, especially endurance athletes. And they're like, oh, well, it's because it's the the length of, of the training that you're doing and the fact that you bleed every month. And we take a step back. It's not necessarily those two factors. It's a factor of when we train, we end up with a higher amount of inflammation post-exercise. And this lasts for three to five hours until your body comes back down to baseline. And during that time frame, we can't really absorb iron. And when we look at, at kind of metabolic patterns and the way women eat is one, we don't eat enough foods with iron in it. And then two, we end up eating within that three to five hour window and we don't absorb the iron from our food. So then when we look at supplementation and people are like, oh, you're on the low end of normal, just take an iron supplement. People don't supplement properly because when we look at the menstrual cycle, if you start supplementing on the first day of your bleed and you supplement every other day leading up to ovulation, you're going to actually absorb that iron. And the reason for that is the enzyme that inhibits your body's ability to absorb iron, hepcidin, which is up after exercise is actually really low because your body's in the bleed phase. So your body's able to really absorb iron well in that low hormone phase. But after ovulation, your body has a pro-inflammatory response. So your body has greater systemic inflammation and greater amount of resting hepcidin. So you can't really absorb iron that well. So if you're going to supplement and do it well, it's every other day starting the first day of bleed up to ovulation. And this allows women to get out of that low end of normal and actually absorb it and use it. And so when you're seeing women who are, you know, low in ferritin and their doctors are like, yeah, we're not going to do anything because you're still on the low end of normal, that's still too low for you because most hmm. of the recommendations are still based on sedentary women. And if you're an active woman, then you need to be like, wait, no, I feel tired and flat and I'm not quite sure I'm on the low end of normal. This is not right. So you can take it upon yourself to supplement every other day and see how that brings things up over the course of three to four months. And if still not, then really vie for an infusion. Boost those iron levels immediately through an infusion and then keep track of what's going on. Yeah, I went for, I'll never forget. I went for a run with a friend maybe a year or two ago and she without a doubt is overly, let's just say she's faster than me. And I remember we were jogging along and she was really struggling and we couldn't make sense of it. Later that day, she coincidentally had a doctor's appointment. She's a history of low iron. They tested her levels and it was like literally in the pits and she got an infusion on the spot. 
So it's so interesting what happens when we take some time to do that inventory and then also prioritize getting in to talk to someone about what's happening within our bodies. Now, you know what I'm going to ask you. We talked about protein supplements or protein sources. What should we be looking to when it comes to good sources of iron? So of course your heme iron, right? So you have your red meats, but then we can look at a lot of um, dark leafy green veggies. So if we cook them, then they're much better absorbed, especially if you're cooking them with um, a vitamin C source or with some um, olive oil or flax oil, because it helps you absorb a lot of the things, both fat soluble vitamins, as well as iron. And you can look at all sorts of fortified foods too. So if you're looking at cereals and breads, those are good. We can look at um, different mushrooms as well. So you get vitamin D with some iron because you want vitamin D to help with the absorption of iron. Another buzzword there, the or buzzword, I guess, another buzzy, buzzy topic there, vitamin D. I'm every day myself putting vitamin D a supplement into my coffee. I also try to regularly get outside and make sure that I'm getting it naturally, but it can also be, that can be another challenging one for women, especially. Yeah. And especially in this time and frame where people are like, use lots of sunscreen. And the fact that we are often pushed inside, right, for all of our jobs, and we tend to go to the gym, we don't get outside a lot. And vitamin D is so important, again, for the iron absorption, because it also helps downregulate inflammation and hepcidin, so then your body's able to absorb more stuff. And it is pretty important because when you start looking at all the things that vitamin D does, it's like the plethora of all the positive changes you want in your body require some vitamin D. Give us an example of what some of those positive changes are. For the most part, we look at um, muscle mass and recovery, as well as bone mineral density. So if you're looking at how vitamin D interacts with some of the mechanisms for muscle protein synthesis, then we realize that yes, there are cofactors within the vitamin D that allow that process to happen and signal it well. We look at bone mineral density. We know that we need vitamin D to help regulate some of our immune cells that actually promote um, bone mineral density accrual and bone turnover. Right, right. Okay. So before we start to wind down here, what I do want to make sure that we address as well, we talked about underfueling before. I myself Uh, gearing up for a marathon. I know that it is important to make sure that I am taking care of my body in the weeks and days leading up, but also during the event itself. What should women know when it comes to fueling for performance? And are there any myths that we need to dispel when it comes to that process? There are two big things, especially you're talking about marathon training, right? So we look at hydration and we look at carbohydrate needs per hour. Yeah. So when we look at hydration, it's it's an interesting mechanism because when we look at a woman and a man who are doing the same distance and they are the same fitness level and they have the relatively same body composition, a man will finish an endurance race with high blood sodium to maybe normal blood sodium. Women will finish normal blood sodium to low blood, blood sodium. And if you are drinking a typical sports drink, there's not enough sodium in that to really help you with fluid absorption. So you end up with more sloshing around in your gut. 
And then your body takes water from other places to put it in there in order to absorb it. And with that, you have a sodium exchange. So it can really perpetuate women to have GI distress and a little bit of a tendency for hyponatremia because often people will drink a sports drink and then switch to plain water because they're like, oh, I can't do that sports drink anymore. So in the aid station, they're just drinking plain water. And we know that women also hold on to more heat and have a harder time per workload dispelling that heat because of body composition changes. So for hydration, we look at a sip, sip, sip approach. We're not going, I need to drink X amount per hour. It's just sip regularly with something with sodium in it. So we look at, you know, a one and a half percent solution. So that's two to three grams of carbohydrate per eight ounces. And you also need at least 160 milligrams of sodium per eight ounces. And that's going to help you actually absorb that fluid and use it. And it's not going to sit in the gut. We look at carbohydrate intake and we see a lot of people are like throwing back gels and they're like, oh, I need 90 grams of carbohydrate per hour. That 90 grams of carbohydrate comes from a research that was done on 13 elite trained male triathletes. And then when we look at sex differences, women have a slower gastric emptying rate than men and stuff tends to sit in the intestines a little bit longer. And then when you take something like a gel, it's concentrated carbohydrate that gets out of the stomach slower, sits in the gut for a longer period of time, and it causes a pressure response. And so the body, again, pulls water from other places to dilute that in order to absorb it, which gives you that GI distress and slosh. So we look at carbohydrate intake. Women are sitting around 30 to 40 grams per hour. Depending on where they are in menstrual cycle, we tend to go higher in the high hormone phase, and you can get away with a little bit less in the low hormone phase. And it's about topping up blood sugar because again, women are clearing blood sugar a lot faster and tapping into free fatty acids. So it's not about trying to conserve muscle glycogen. It's about actually just keeping that blood sugar elevated. So 30 grams and that's spread across the hour. And that's enough to keep that blood sugar elevated in order to maintain pace, not through a gel, but maybe some chews. You can use some glucose tablets. You could use um, diluted Coke, but definitely not gels because it's just too concentrated. Right, right. So I think that anyone listening to this right now who may be completely like reevaluating everything they've ever known about uh, intake during some sort of an endurance event, certainly do what feels right for you and your body, right? So that is what the training period is for. The training period is for you to maybe listen to a podcast like this, think, hmm, this is really interesting and play around with some different types of fueling for you. Do not, under any circumstance, listen to this podcast this weekend, go run a marathon and completely change everything you have ever done because Dr. Stacey Sims said it would work this way. No, it doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't. Take it with an understanding that, okay, now that I know this, I have the opportunity to experiment with it going forward. Right. 100%. Glad you brought that up. I remember being in the Ironman Kona World Expo and, you know, at sport nutrition things. And these people would come up and they'd want to buy the latest thing to use in the race the next day. I'm like, I'm not selling it to you. No, no, (laughs) no, 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 no. You don't change anything. What you do in training is you have key workouts and you mess around with the fueling and see how you feel. We do depleted stuff, right? So like if you're trying to figure out how your body responds to a hit of sugar during a run, well, then 
at the back half of your run, this is where you start playing with glucose tablets or you start playing with blocks, but you don't go out on the day of a race or even <laughs> two weeks before a race and decide to change things up. No. Anything you're listening to right now, if you happen to also be training for an endurance event, think about implementing it in your next training cycle. Perhaps. Exactly. 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 So many, so many, so many excellent takeaways in this conversation. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you really feel strongly that we should highlight when it comes to fueling for performance? Yes. Don't carbo load. <laughs> That's the other myth that you can possibly put in more carbohydrate into your muscle, but there's no performance benefit. So we see like pasta dinners and we see this huge amount of carbohydrate intake a few days before. It doesn't work for women. The best trick, not really trick, but it's just increase your total amount of carbohydrate that you're eating in a couple of weeks before you have an event. So you go from your 45 or 50% to 55 up to 70%, especially as you get closer to the race. So that way your body actually accumulates it, stores it, increases the way that your blood glucose responds. And that's the way that women should be increasing the amount of carbohydrate with the eye to know that we don't use as much during exercise as men do. So it's really just kind of re-examining the way you look at that term and how you implement it for your body. A massive obscene pasta dinner every night for a week isn't going to change or help you like a slow increase in overall carbohydrate intake as your training progresses. Exactly. 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 Wow. So much goodness in here. Again, Dr. Stacey Sims, thank you so much for the hurdlers that are listening right now that may not follow you just yet. Give us your info so they can keep up. Uh, so the big way to keep up with everything that's going on is our website, drstacysims.com. And then you can look at our social, same thing, Dr. Stacey Sims on Insta and Facebook. Um, cause we got a lot of cool things coming on. So yeah, keep up, keep up. I'm over at Emily body and at hurdle podcast, another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.